Google Docs is, are you guys familiar with this? I mean, Google Docs are literally unbelievable. It's, it's, um, it's truly humbling. Google Voice, any of you guys have Google Voice, right? Gmail is by far the best email system that there is on the face of the planet, right? But, but my favorite, no? How many, of you guys, how many of you guys don't have Gmail? Just confess and be safe. Okay, so several of you. Listen, here's the cool thing. It's free, all right? So mail.google.com, you can sign up really, really easily. My favorite, though, component of Google is the calendar, okay? Now, here's why. The calendar is literally moron-proof. Now, what, what, I'm, what I mean by that is, like, it is set up to give you an insane amount of reminders. Let me speak if, as if I was the calendar for a moment. All right, here's the plan. Um, I'm going to send you a text message at the appropriate time that you note before your appointment. And then I'm also going to send you an email, and then something's going to pop up on your computer. And if you pay enough money, I'll put a stinging message on the back of an airplane. I mean, you will not miss your appointment. And that's what I love about Google Calendar, just this constant reminder. You're meeting right now. This is what you should wear. It, like, it like has a mind of its own. It's really weird, right? And in fact, it like orders for you. You just put your phone out, and like Google just talks. It's really insane. I love reminders. Anyone else just, you just love reminders? How, how many of you guys just say, I need a tremendous amount of reminders, okay, and the rest of you need reminders that you need reminders, but, um, but I love reminders, and, and I, I just, I was sharing this with Brandon yesterday, I, I just feel like we need a reminder right now, um, look, I like, especially if you grew up in the church, or if you spent some time in the church, because like a lot of action happens up here, like this is where the band plays, and this is where the person preaches from, I think it's easy to like get in this rhythm that we're here to just like watch things that are happening up here and then and then we're like just to leave and then gauge how things went up here like ba- based upon our experience then so whatever happened like where the action was then on our car rides home we'll be like well that that was a good service or that service just felt disconnected and what you're basing it on is things that are happening up here I, really Im- impacting my heart yesterday was this thought I have literally never one time in my life, especially in my preaching at Matthias, I have never stood up hoping that you would think that I preached a good message. It has never, ever, ever been my heart that when I stand up here and we dig into God's Word, that you would then walk away and say, that was a nice message. Like that was a good teaching. I really believe in the, the fullest depth of my heart, and I just want to be vulnerable with you guys, I, I feel like I'm here, and we're here to lead worship, and here to teach the Word of God, to give all of us a deeper perspective of who God is, of what His character is, of how deep His love is. Like, th- this isn't about pomp and circumstance, you see what I'm saying? And so it's, it's not like teaching something that's nice or that's good, it's just wherever you're at, in your either deep faith of God or deep distance of God, giving each of you the opportunity to see a piece, a glimpse of God's character and then just allow you to respond. You see what I'm saying? So I just want to remind you, like, I don't prepare and, like, study so that I can stand up here in the hopes that I'll preach a good message. Literally, I stand up here studying God's Word in the prayer and the pleads and the hopes that some of you, if not all of you, would grow in your depth and understanding of who God is what his character is, what that means from you, and the response that it calls from us. Because I believe that his word is living. I believe that it's not just living, I believe that it's active. 
I don't believe that it's not just living, that it's active. I believe it cuts to our core. And I believe when it gets to our core, it's supposed to dwell there. And that's what we studied last week. That somehow, strangely, these words literally get to the inner, innermost piece of us and in that moment confront us because it's the deepest component of truth we will ever be exposed to, right? And so listen, tonight is going to be especially, especially challenging for those of you that just want a neat, nice message. The reason is tonight is going to be packed in history. It's going to be packed in context with the chance that if we can for once truly get the concept of this particular thing the writer of Hebrews is talking about, I'm telling you, so many things will connect for you. So open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. The writer will introduce a topic, conversation, a title for me that has truly been one of my favorite things to teach. And so I hope that you have your seatbelt on and I hope that you're ready to plow through. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. When you're there, say I'm there. Many of you and many still searching. You need a reminder. Here we go. Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who is passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every aspect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here we go. This massive title, High Priest. If you have spent some time in the church, this is a phrase or a concept or a title that I'm guessing you've heard before, but I'm telling you what tonight, you're about to get a whole different perspective of the High Priest. So, I feel like we all need to get on the same page. Because the writer of Hebrews is literally going to spend chapters worth of time teaching on what the high priest is. And so I believe we need to understand what the high priest is. Are you, are you with me? All right? So I'm going to walk you through the historical background and understanding now of the Jewish high priest, which is so incredibly interesting. I pray that your hearts are engaged. So the first question that we need to ask is where did the office of the high priest originate? Where does it come from? Well, these next slide. There are these three amazing patriarchs in Genesis. Abraham has a son Isaac, and Isaac has a son Jacob. And these three men, whom God calls Abraham first in Genesis 12, become the bedrock, the whole storyline, really, of what God is going to do in the nation of Israel. And the whole book of Genesis after chapter 12 is all based upon these three characters. Now, one of Jacob's sons is called Joseph. And I would imagine that some of you have seen Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And so, like, your theological doctrines of who Joseph is is pretty solid, I'm sure. All right? But, listen, but he had another son. And that son's name was, next slide, that son's name of, of, of Jacob was Levi. Now, Jacob had 12 sons. And these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. He also has one daughter. But this one son in particular is who we're really interested in tonight. And that's, as I already said, Levi. Now, check this out. Uh, the one sister of Levi, her name is Dinah. Okay? And in Genesis chapter 34, there is this man named Shechem. And Shechem shows up and recognizes that Dinah is beautiful. 
And this is the crazy piece of scripture that the Bible adds these things, which to me helps its, its, its legitimacy. Shechem rapes Dinah in the scripture, Genesis 34. All right? Now, uh, Joseph, or, or Jacob and, and all of his sons don't take too kindly to this, especially Levi. All right? As many of you, if you had a sister who was defiled in that way, who was tortured in that way, like it would mess with you, it would wreck you. So what happens is Levi and his brother Simeon come up with this dramatic plan. They trick all of the men who are in that area to get circumcised, the scripture says in Genesis 34. Now, interestingly enough, on the third day, the scripture says, when they were sore, all the males, we'll not go into details there, when they were sore, listen, Levi and Simeon get out their sword, and you guys know what the scripture says? They kill every male. That's in the Bible too. And by the way, this is like the chosen nation of Israel. Levi. Like one, they literally get out their sword, kill every male, and then the scripture says they plunder the city and take back with them all of the women and the children. Now, Jacob didn't know about this plan, his father. And so he shows up to Levi and he's like, um, this troubles me. As he sees this massive massacre, this troubles me, this vexes my heart, Jacob says. And you know what Levi says? He says, what, is our sister a prostitute? That's what he says at the end of uh, uh, chapter 34. Now, you're like, this seems random. My friends, it's not random at all. Because Levi has this daughter, and her name is this. Next slide. Her name is uh, Joshebed. Now, that seems, again, completely random. If you don't know the story of Genesis, you're like, okay, this is a nice story so far. But Joshebed marries this interesting man named Amram. Now, these two give birth to two incredibly important characters in our understanding of the Old Testament. Anyone know? Moses and Aaron come from this line. And so now all of a sudden we're starting to see this interwoven pattern. And the first question is, where does the priesthood or the high priest originate? Aaron becomes, in Exodus chapter 28, becomes the first priest and all of his sons. Now, it's interesting to note that two of Aaron's sons end up being killed because their inability to give a proper sacrifice. And so God truly takes this office of high priest serious. But look, all of this goes back to who? To Levi. Now, if you know anything about the scripture as it pertains to Genesis, you know that it's the Levites who the priestly order come from, from beginning to end. Biblically, we see, as best as I can tell, 83 high priests. Most a life term, most sons after fathers, and all in the tribe of Levi. Now, this by itself isn't significant at all. But if you add it to this next slide, then things start to get interesting. Next slide for me. You're like, okay, this just got incredibly weird. That's an amazing Halloween costume, right? <laughs> now, this shows us the prominent role of the high priest. This is what the high priest rocked. This is what he wore right here, okay? I don't know how many of you could pull that off, but let's start at the top there. That's um, a turban. Now, on the gold plate of the turban that you see there were the words inscribed, listen to this, holy to Yahweh. Until we understand why that's on that gold piece, I'm telling you, you will not, you'll miss the office. We can, talk about, we can talk about high priests all we want. Do you understand that most Jews wouldn't even say Yahweh because of the power that it had? 
And so if a man, a high priest chosen by God, is literally wearing it on a gold plate on his head, do you see for a moment that this position has tremendous weight in Jewish culture? As we go down here, things get more interesting. You'll see on his shoulders, those aren't shoulder pads, those are uh, two onyx precious stones inscribed on each of them, identically the twelve sons of Israel. You'll know that Jacob was renamed Israel as a significant point in what Jacob, what will come from Jacob. As we go down there, you'll see some, a brilliant um, kind of undergarment. And the 12 things that you see, see there in the middle are the most significant thing that the high priest wears. Four rows of three stones, and on each of those stones is one of the tribes of Israel. Now, as he wore these things, and this was his typical garb, blue robe underneath and white linen on the very underskirts of it all, is this was to show his prominence. As the high priest paraded at times around in this garb, it showed that all were to see this man as something special. Why? Why was the high priest so special? Not just because God chose him, not just because it began with Aaron, not just because it all came from the Levites, but why is the high priest so special? Because on one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go through the entire temple and he would be the only one ever allowed in the most holy of holy place in the entire temple. And so everyone was... Like had this great understanding that it was the high priest that could go there. But why? Why would he go there? Well, check this out. We talk about sin. You ever, you ever wonder, like, it, it's just kind of this weird concept of where does our sin go when it's forgiven? Have you ever thought about that before? Like, it, because we, we, it's like so organic, like my sins are forgiven, and we know that they have been crucified on the cross of Christ. And, but it's weird, like whenever you start thinking about the semantics of it all, it's like, okay, so where does it... Well, listen to this. To an ancient Jew, all of their sins as they were giving year-long sacrifice, all the year long, you want to know where those sins went? They went to literally the innermost piece of this sanctuary, the innermost piece of the Holy of Holies. It became a collection then of all of the Jews' sins in this most holy place, which does what to this holy place? It makes it incredibly defiled. I mean, this is not good now. That's why on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in, and by the way, as he would go in, he would begin to shed his garments. Why? The last garment is what? It's white. The thought was, as he got in the Holy of Holies, if he's wearing all of this stuff, then it's as if he's competing with God. But if he's down to his white linens then the glory that God has in this holy of holies is reflecting back to him. Are you with me? So as he would go and give sacrifice, the thought was on this one day, all of the collected sins of the Jews are gone, atoned for, paid for by animal sacrifice. Interesting. More interesting if you know his process. The first thing he would do is he'd have to wash himself, like bathe incredibly a lot, right? I don't even know if that's the right way to say it. But on the Day of Atonement, he would literally have to wash every piece of him to make sure that he was just even bodily cleansed. Now, the second piece was a young bull, the sacrifice of a young bull. And he would sacrifice the young bull for himself. 
Isn't it interesting that a human chosen by God to take this office of high priest to make sacrifice on all the people first had to make a sacrifice upon himself, showing what? His humanity. He's still in need. He's not above forgiveness. He still needs it. And so he gives sacrifice. Now the next thing that would happen is he would sacrifice two goats, okay? Now I know many of you would, you'd actually like to do that, right? You're like, this would be incredibly fun. But here's what he would do. He would take two goats and he would cast lots. And whenever a goat landed on the lot, that would be the goat whose life would be took. And with the blood of that goat, he would go into the innermost holy of holies and he would spray the blood on what's called the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat is the piece of the Ark of the Covenant which held the Ten Commandments, which was in the most holy of holies, which the thought was once the blood hits this mercy seat in the holy of holies, all of the collected sin of the Jews are atoned for. But what about the other goat? The other goat, listen to this, really interesting, he would literally lay his hands on that goat, and then that goat would be sent out to the wilderness alive. And the image was all of the sins of the Jews are literally not just atoned for, but they're literally gone. They're, they're completely out of here. Listen, what we have to understand about the high priest, and this is going to seem so significant here in a second, a prominent figure, an untouchable figure, a person that people knew who they were, and what role they played. But there was this distance between the individual and the high priest. There was this distance between what the individual performed and what the high priest actually did. Now, all of this again is like, okay, that's good history. I feel like we're in like geography or something. Listen, when you know all of this, then all of a sudden the scripture starts to breathe. So look again here in verse 14 with me of Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. If we just know high priest as the one person who goes in on the day of atonement, we miss this whole concept. Passed through the heavens. What is he alluding to here? The high priest what? Passes through the temple. The flesh, how human, high priest, passes through the temple and as he's going, he sheds his garments so the white linen is all that's left. But there's a different high priest. As, as this writer says, the great high priest who doesn't pass through the temple, passes through the heavens, you see? And so all of a sudden, if you understand this, what the temple is doing and who the high priest is, you catch this. And I'm telling you this right now. The Jews who would have been reading this would know all of these things. Pass through the heavens. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is, told, this is a different high priest. Not just because you called him the great high priest, but because he's passing through the heavens. And not just this. Look at this. This next piece here in verse 14. Jesus, the Son of God. Again, you know as a Jew... That the Levites and all of the sons thereafter are the ones who the priests come from. But here what the writer says is, this great high priest doesn't come from Levi. In fact, if you know your tribal, your Jewish tribal uh, orientation, you know that Jesus actually comes from the tribe of anyone? Judah, which we'll talk about more next week. So it's this image of he doesn't come from this lineage of the priests on this earth. He comes from God, the Son of God. It seems really interesting to me. 83 or so high priests, hundreds of years. Listen, isn't it crazy 
how unbelievable God's sovereignty, love, planning is, that he would spend hundreds of years developing a system, showing a system to prove a dynamic point. You see this? Why all of these high priests to escalate one? You see what I'm saying? All of this history, all of this understanding, who the high priest is, what the high priest does, so that when one comes, the great high priest, all of a sudden, it's exalted. And that person, the scripture says, is Jesus. Now because of this, he says this at the end of verse 14. Because this is Jesus, let us hold fast to our confession. He's pleading with them. You no longer have to believe in a system. Listen, for a second. Imagine yourself, back in the Old Testament, having to put your trust in a man making connection between you and God. Put yourself there for a second. You're literally having, listen, to put your trust in the fact that the high priest is able to give a sacrifice worthy for your sins. Your trust is in a system. You see what I'm saying? Now, it's a God-ordained system, again, to escalate Jesus. But could you imagine struggling with that a little bit in your heart? Hold on, you're telling me that I have to rest on some man. And you know that the high priest would have to tie something around his leg in case he died in the Holy of Holies and they could pull him out, right? Like that was the case. Think about having to put your trust in a system. What he's saying here is hold fast to your confession because your trust is no longer in a system. It's in a person. It's in a king. It's in a savior. 83 or so high priests, and now you have one that means everything. All of these others were pointing to the great. So hold fast to your confession. So I ask each of you tonight, what's your confession? What would you say of the Christ? Not yesterday or not tomorrow, but right now. What is your confession? Hold fast to it. Cherish it. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is, is this a good thing? Is Christ, as the great high priest, a good thing? No more in the system, now in a king, now in a savior. And if it is a good thing, verse 15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Again, if you just like know high priest as a term, you miss this whole thing. Listen to this. Would you know the high priest as a common Jew? No way. Okay? He maybe had a few peripheral friends. He's walking around to this. He's a very prominent figure. You might know his name, maybe. And I'll guarantee you this. He definitely doesn't know you. You're a common Jew. All of the Jews are together. And he represents the collective whole. Listen, do you get this? What the writer is saying is, the great high priest is able to sympathize with those who he's representing because he knows them. He knows them. He understands what they're going through, relates. He was tempted in every way, yet he remains sinless. It's not just that he represents you, it's that he knows you. Now this is unbelievable, and I wish we could be Jewish for a second so we could get this. Because I feel like the weight on our hearts, it just doesn't make the impact that it would if we lived in ancient Jerusalem. 
If all of a sudden you go from believing in a system and a man, and then not just a man but a Savior knows you intimately in a way that he's related to you because he's come down from heaven, lived a sinless life, and tempted in every way that you have, all of a sudden things shift. Now, in Matthew, the gospel records uh, all of this understanding of how Jesus was tempted by Satan. And here's what the writer means, that he was tempted in every way and in the depths and in every way that, that we ever have been and so much deeper. If Satan offers one of his temptations, literally the kingdoms of the world, okay? Now, Jesus, as it says here in verse 15, that in every aspect has been tempted as we are, that seems a little like, like you kind of question that, like, are you sure? Because I've certainly been tempted in some ways that you guys would never even understand. Have you ever been offered the world? Literally. Have you, has that ever been offered to you? Like, like in lust, for instance. Have you ever just been offered, literally, like all, of your, all that your lust can conjure up? Here. Like all of the things that you would ever want wealth-wise. Like here, have it all. Take it. Have you ever been offered that? No. No, you haven't. And that's what I love the picture. Uh, that's what I love about the picture here. Is you think in times that your temptation is like so great. But you'll fall, like, if you're just offered a little sliver of the world, like a, the most minute sliver of the world, like you'll just indulge right now. Oh, yes, please, right? Right? But Jesus, but Jesus was offered it all. And in the face of Satan, literally says, like, are you kidding me? First of all, it's not yours to give me. And second of all, like, I'm just going to quote the scripture right on your face, you know? I, I mean, you just, like, you can't, it's like dangling nothing in front of the set. Like, you, this doesn't work. He sympathizes, he relates in every way. Let, let me give you a, a little bit of a picture. Listen, uh, doctors, right? You, you guys know about doctors. Um, there's these certain people, doctors, called brain surgeons. Listen, how many of those brain surgeons you think have ever actually had brain surgery? Small percentage, right? Few, maybe. But we still want those guys working on our brain, don't we? Like, you don't want a knee doctor. What's the official term? orthopedic, orthopedist, okay, um, you don't want an orthopedist, you don't want a dentist, let's go with that, you don't want a dentist working on your brain, all right, do you, like come here, like I have a couple cavities in my frontal canal, in my front canal here, right, anyway, um, no, you, you don't want that, but listen, Jesus likewise, sinless, but he understands the depth of sin because he was tempted in every way. You see what I'm saying? Just because the brain surgeon hasn't had brain surgery doesn't mean that he doesn't understand what he's doing. Jesus tempted in every way, in the fullest extent. It's him that we can rest in because he's been offered the world yet remained sinless. Now, if all of this is true, if all of the depth of our understanding of the high priest, if Jesus relates in such a way then what the writer says is that means something. And verse 16 explains that. Look at this. Unbelievable. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, listen. This is one of the scriptural treasures, this verse. I mean, it is a treasure. Here we have a phenomenal picture of if Jesus is the great high priest, if one man, if one savior 
can all of a sudden take all of these hundreds of years of sacrifice, and we'll look at it more in Hebrews chapter 7, and die once for all. If all of that can happen, then what, he, what his response is, it, is then you should go to him in times of need. You don't need to rest on man any longer. Do you see the picture here? That's what he's saying. You rest on man no more. You rest on the Savior. No man ever represents you anymore. No man intercedes for you anymore. It's Christ. He's your great high priest. He's the one you seek. He's the one you go to. Now, I was thinking about all this. And I was trying to conceptualize for a moment on what help as it pertains to Christ looks like. Because I think we share that a lot. Like, hey, like we, do, we need some help. And so what we should do is go to Jesus. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't content with just that. So here's what I did. I looked at every single opportunity in Matthew where people seek help. Every single one. And I studied the stories and I looked at their similarities because I wanted to give each of us who some are in desperate need of help tonight. I wanted to give each of us scriptural encouragement instead of just saying, hey, if you need help, like the, you, hear, you got the great high priest. Well, what did the people in Scripture do when they needed help? What did it look like? What was happening? What was the dynamic? So look at this. I want to look at these four things, and I just want to show you straight from the Scripture. Matthew 8, 2. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What does this show us? First of all, if you need help, you go to Jesus. You don't go anywhere else. Primarily, you go to the Christ. Now, God's provided certain relationships in our lives and all these things for us, which many of us go to first. The scripture over and over. You go to Christ first. You may need counseling, you may need help, you may need relationships, but ultimately, you go to Jesus first. You don't go to some self-help seminar. You don't go to all these things looking for your answers. Literally, all of your answers are found in Christ. You go to Jesus after that, God may provide other avenues for you, but that's where you start. Over and over and over in the, in the scriptures, all through the gospels, people, they're just going to Jesus. Because well, here's what they realize. If you go to Jesus, like things happen. You know? Like if that's where you land, if that's where you go, then it seems like there's something happening around the person of Christ different from some man. So do you get this? If Jesus is our high priest, if he's the one making intercession, then stuff's happening. Instead, one day out of the year, Day of Atonement, someone would go in and represent all the people, but now it's all the time. Number two, look at this. Matthew 9, 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Unbelievable. The second thing is this. Go to Jesus, and when you get there, trust that, he, that he's able. Over and over and over, these folks who are going to Jesus, they just believe that he can. And, and I'm not saying that in every instance in Scripture, and, and certainly not in every instance now, when you go to Jesus and you have this perceived concept of what it is that you need help on, that he's going to answer in that exact way. All I know is this, you better believe that he's able. You better believe that when you get there, that he can do something. And it may not be the something that you've conjured up in your mind, but he can. He's able. When you go, trust he's able. Thirdly, look at this. Matthew 8, verse 6. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to them, I will come and heal him. I love this. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
but only say the word and my servant will be healed. The third thing is this. When you get there, know that you're undeserving. And I feel like of the four things I'm going to look at, this is probably the one that we struggle with the most. Like, all right, Christ, here I am. I'm at you. Man, I certainly believe you're able, and I certainly believe I deserve a hookup right now, you know? Like, look at how well I've served you. Look at all the things I know about you. Look at how much conjuring up I've done in people's minds about you. Certainly I deserve, but over and over in Scripture, literally every single time that someone seeks out the Christ, it's over and over and over. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Peter said it to himself. I'm not worthy. I'm not even, don't, I, away from me. I'm a sinful man. Go to Jesus. Trust he's able, and when you get there, you better know that you're undeserving. And anything, anything that comes, what does verse 16 say? Is grace and mercy. Things that you don't deserve and things that you're not getting, though you do deserve them. Period. Fourthly, look at this. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When you get there, the fourth thing is this. You just plead for mercy. The most consistent phrase said in the book of Matthew as it pertains to help, have mercy on us. Now, if you're a Jewish reader and your mind is having to shift from a system to a king, your mind is having to turn from history to something that's living, your heart is having to be transformed from tradition to now. The writer believes that the only way to do that in the hearts of his readers is to change their understanding of who Jesus is as the high priest now. 83 high priests. And interesting enough, you know, what, you know when the last high priest is? Year around 70 AD. Anyone know what happens in 70 AD? The temple is destroyed. Okay? Strangely enough, we go hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of high priests. The temple's destroyed, and the priests don't have no, nowhere else to go to give sacrifice. And so the whole sacrificial system in the ancient Judaism is gone, is done, because the place of sacrifice is over. And what I have to ask you tonight, friends, is this. This one question. If he is all of these things, if he is in fact our intercessor, the great high priest, if the white linen, my friends... The reflection of it doesn't even begin to compare to the glory of God. Can I ask you this? Do you just need help tonight, man? What is it tonight? Right now? That you're just like, I just, I just, I need, a tr I just need help. My marriage is in trouble. My finances are amok. I don't know who I am. I constantly am struggling with jealousy. I'm constantly finding my worth in the things of this world. I'm, I, just, I just need help. I need help. I, I don't even necessarily know what to do. In fact, even as I came in tonight, I was weighed down and burdened, and I just need help. Can I tell you this? We have an opportunity to not rest at all in a system, in a series, in a tradition. We have the chance to go to Jesus, trust that he is able, literally rest on him, and plead for his mercy. That's our response. That's the response, my friends, that this writer was eliciting from his readers. No more intercession from man. 
now your intercession is straight to the throne of God because Jesus has passed through the heavens. So tonight isn't about history or you saying like, man, all that high priest stuff was interesting. Tonight's about you assessing your need of help. And if you need it, it's clear what to do. I think part of the rhythm for us as a church that the Lord set up so that we would know our sin and remember our need and instantly ask for help was in providing for us this rhythm of the the Lord's Supper. And on this one great night as he gathered with all of his disciples, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Listen, you you need desperate help. This whole man sacrifice, it's not working. Like this, my body, once for all, will abolish all sin. No more yearly, no more daily animal sacrifice. My broken body. And so he said, take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And then the Christ, the Messiah, the great high priest, he held up the cup. Can you for one second, listen, can you understand how many animals had been slain? Can you understand for a moment how much blood had been sprinkled on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies for hundreds of years? And the image of the cup held high was that blood from one source, one source, would cover it all, my friends. And so he held up the cup and he said, this, this spilt blood represents the new covenant, the new promise. Now your hope's in me. And so all of the blood of the mercy seat as the curtain and the veil tears in two is now you have access to God through the blood. This meal tonight is for believers, those who trust in Jesus. But for all of us tonight, no matter where your faith is at, if it's lingering or if it's holding strong, let me share this with you. It's in these moments now, right now, that we've seen the powerful glimpse of God's character and we have an opportunity to cry out for help. And I'm telling you this, that God is nearer than you could ever imagine. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to completely rest in you. I ask, Lord God, that we would never, ever trust in the authority of man over you. That we would give full credence to who you are as our great high priest. And God, that we would trust that you're able. And so God, I pray tonight that you would just receive us as we come to you. I pray, God, that you would stir our hearts as we come to you, as we flood to you for help. And I pray, God, as our fists are clenched and we plead for mercy, I pray that you would be gracious. I pray that you would help the marriages. I pray that you would heal the hearts. I pray, God, that you would take the lustful. I pray, God, that the greedy would fall repentant. I pray even, God, for those who have never cried for mercy before, that you would hear the distant cry of your lost sheep and that you would breathe life into them now. Hear our cries of mercy. We're undeserving, Lord. 